With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You have a brother in the 2nd Battalion. Yes, sir. They're walking into a trap. Your orders are to deliver a message calling off tomorrow morning's attack. If you fail, it will be a massacre. Let's talk about this for a minute. Why? We've got orders to cross here. That is the German front line. If we're not clever about this, no one will get to your brother. I will. Today we're thrilled to be joined by Academy Award-winning director Sam Mendes and Oscar-winning cinematographer Roger Deakins about their new World War I drama, 1917, which uniquely appears as if it was shot in one continuous take. Mendes won an Oscar for directing Best Picture winner American Beauty, and he previously collaborated with Deakins on Jarhead, Revolutionary Road, and Skyfall. Deakins won an Oscar for Blade Runner 2049, which was his 14th nomination in the category. His credits also include The Shawshank Redemption, Fargo, and No Country for Old Men. Today, the pair join us to discuss the unique approach to making 1917 and their collaborative process. I'm Carolyn Jardina. Welcome to The Hollywood Reporter's Behind the Screen. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. So for starters, to tell this story, which takes place in real time with a ticking clock, would you tell us about your initial intent to create the film to appear as if it's one continuous take? Yes. I mean, I I felt like I wanted to tell this very intimate story that took place over just two hours of real time of this one person. Initially, it was one person carrying a message. And then I thought, Closely after that thought, I had the thought, why don't we just do it with one shot? And I suppose I felt that that would immerse us in that world more completely and connect us to the emotional journey of the character more completely. And the more I thought about it, the better idea it seemed and the more I worried about the moment I would have to send it to Roger Deakins. (laughs) 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 So I thought, I better get it out of the way. Once I wrote it, I put it on the front page. This movie is written and designed to be one continuous shot. 
and then I put put my fingers in my ears while he read it. Yeah, well, just as well you did, really. <laughs> was a few four-letter words. <laughs> what was no, your initial no. thought, Roger? No, I, I mean, on the first page you go, really? Um, but then, you know, I've worked with Sam, so I knew it's not going to be a gimmick. And, um, you know, it, it became pretty clear quite early on reading the script, the kind of reason for it, the kind of immersive kind of idea that Sam was after because there it was on the page you know it, it really felt it so yeah well let's start with pre-production um you shot in various locations around the uk and these were very long takes you couldn't repeat locations would you talk a bit about why you picked the locations that you did and a little bit about the production design work well obviously the main reason what we were looking for was to replicate the landscape of northern france that the movie is set in so roger and i went out to battlefields of the Somme and to Belgium where we saw what remains of that landscape it was very moving and very uh, beautiful place but very flat quite bleak and quite difficult to actually find replica of that feeling that atmosphere vast skies and um, flatlands with little copses and forests in England and we ended up finding it actually was Roger's suggestion at Salisbury Plain which is turns out to be hundreds of thousands of acres of military land, very unspoiled, in southwest England. And that formed the majority of it. And then we built the trenches. We built over a mile of trenches in Bovingdon Airfield. We dug them. Um, but, of course, we had to walk the trenches first. So, you know, it went in stages. We ended up, we started walking on a empty field, and then we put down stakes in the ground where the journey was. And then we marked out the trenches. Then we dug them rehearsed again dug a little more rehearsed again and by the end you know it was one unbroken chain of of trenches that went for over a mile and that was near london and then we had other locations we had a canal in scotland and in uh, govan docks we had a river in the the tees but then of course we all we had to stitch them all together to feel like one continuous landscape but i think without having gone to northern france and roger to begin with i don't think we would have been able to have that was always easier for us to return to that image of, of the landscape we'd, we'd walk through on those That's two right. days. Well, interesting thing, I think, going to northern France, we went particularly to Vimy Ridge, and then we went to this other place that was on the French front line towards Verdun. And Vimy Ridge is brown soil, clay, and the trench lines, the British and the, the German trenches were only about 150 feet, 200 feet apart. And then, and it's all brown and mud, like you would expect. And then we went to this, the French front line, and it was white, because it was all chalk. And the front line there was maybe a mile and a half, two miles apart. And it felt completely different. Yeah, so I think that informed you about the, the idea of starting off in the, the brown world, and then when they move to the other, towards the Hindenburg line, they go into this chalk landscape, you know, which is obviously what we could find at Salisbury Plain, yeah. you know. Colonel McKenzie has not seen these aerials of the enemy's new line. Come around here, gentlemen. Three miles deep, field fortifications, defences, artillery, the like of which we've never seen before. The second are due to attack the line shortly after dawn tomorrow. They have no idea what they're in for. And we can't warn them. As a parting gift, the enemy cut all our telephone lines. Your orders are to get to the second at Kwasi Wood, one mile southeast of the town of Akust. Deliver this to Colonel Mackenzie. 
it is a direct order to call off tomorrow morning's attack. If you don't, it will be a massacre. We will lose two battalions, 1,600 men, your brother among them. You think you can get there in time? Yes, sir. What was the average length of each take? Oh, the average length of, of scenes was probably six to seven minutes. The longest was nearly 10. Often the reason for that was emotional. In other words, you know, you, you didn't want to break the emotion of the scene. You didn't want to break the kind of thread of the performance. And then sometimes the reason was technical. We were shifting, you know, incredibly difficult landscape coming out of a high window or, you know, going down a vast crater or crossing a um, bridge. You know, these are the things obviously when the rigs have to change. So you have to find a way to shift from one rig to another. So it varied the reasons for breaking them. But then, of course, you know, you had this kind of nagging uh, pain that was, you know, you, you would do a nine minute take and after eight minutes and 30 seconds, it was going brilliantly. And then somebody would make a mistake or, you know, somebody would trip or somebody would fluff a line and then you had to do it all over again and nothing of that take could be used. There were some magical moments that we had to leave behind, you know, in the search for other magical moments. And in the end, we didn't move on until we got them. Um, and for every bit of frustration was suddenly forgotten when you have find the take. It's, it's an exhilarating feeling when you get it finally. How many takes did you typically have to do? Probably... Well, you would think some of the bigger ones would be more. There's a very long and magnificently shot sequence at the end, I think, by Roger, which is a final run, which you see some of in the trailer, for example. Well, we didn't do that many times because we'd rehearsed it so much. And there were so many explosives going off that we couldn't. But we knew that, so we knew we had a limited number of occasions when we could do it. Whereas some of the scenes that we thought were perhaps more simple ended up being much more complicated because of small details like hand props or, you know, lighting a cigarette and the lighter breaks or, you know, all these sorts of things that go on or just forgetting a line and trying to stage things in a way that felt absolutely natural and yet was, you know, completely in sort of sync with the camera, the choreography of the camera and the actors being very complicated. So we probably did, on average, about 20, but some scenes went to 50 takes, you know, and there was one particular seven or eight minute scene that we did 50 takes of. And months of rehearsal. And on top of the months of rehearsal, yeah. And, and, you know, we rehearsed not just open air, but we also built the trenches out of cardboard boxes in a big stage at Shepparton so that we could move the trench walls if we felt they were too narrow or too wide and we could create the dugouts and we could create the little, you know, divots in the in the trench so that we could sense what the rhythm the physical rhythm of the scene was rather than just the verbal rhythm because often you know they're moving through through landscape and they're not saying anything at all and i think probably one of the most difficult anyway roger would probably agree was no man's land because basically it's a huge vast stretch of mud and to give it the detail um and the incidents that were required without any dialogue i thought that was that was something that and, and whilst constantly changing the actor's relationship to the camera so you weren't simply following them from behind that was something that we worked very hard on i think that was no man's land was interesting as well because it's actually the one i think that informed our language if you like it was the first one that we i mean when you're in the trenches at the beginning you're either behind or in front so it was kind of coming around on details i mean that was something had to work out but it was straightforward and it was just about the length but when we got on no man's land it was like okay well how do we work with the actors and choreograph 
the camera movement with the actors, so you see details, but and then you go from one character's close-up to another character, and then you see them wide, and then you see what they're looking at. You know, uh, that, that was really interesting. I think that informed a lot about what we're going to do with the rest of the film, really. Yeah, I think that's true. How we could free the camera at moments when we needed to. Roger, would you elaborate on how you choreographed the camera? Because you clearly went for different types of rigs what was involved? Yeah, but I mean, the first thing was to work out what we wanted to do with the camera. And I remember distinctly when we first started talking about it, Sam said, well, the trick is here not to think about technique, not to think, oh, how the hell are we going to do this? Because neither of us knew. But it was like, okay, where do we want the camera to be? What's their relationship, what's the camera's relationship to the, the actors and, and what's happening in the frame? And uh, yeah. Yeah, and I think we neither of us wanted it to be self-advertising as, a, as yeah. a, you know, to, I think that we, we spoke early on about not wanting an audience to think about, ooh, that's interesting, look where they put the camera. So the camera doesn't do anything showy, you know, it doesn't go through the eye of a needle, it doesn't pass through panes of glass or, or, or pass through walls, um, and it doesn't sort of travel with a moving bullet, you know what I mean? And yet within that, it has an infinite um, variety, I think, and it moves constantly, as Roger just described with No Man's Land, what they see, what they're looking at. It hands off between one character and the other. Sometimes it's cut free entirely, at very specific and, and, and I hope well chosen moments. So, but I think that at the end of the day, the choices about how the camera and the actors and the characters, the dance of the, of, of the two of them, was about instinct. We didn't have any really hard and fast rules because at times the camera is very subjective and at times it's very objective at times you're seeing the characters at a distance in the vastness of the landscape and at times you're seeing them at the expense of seeing where they are and the two things had to be in balance the whole time and also we didn't want to go you know back and forth pan back and forth between two characters while they were talking for us that wasn't one shot that's just a slightly less good way of cutting dialogue, you know? Um, and so the camera never does that. It's always moving forward. And it, it, the feeling we wanted was that it was pulling you forward through, through the, sh the, the, the movie, through the story. And it wasn't presenting you with information, <coughs> but the information you needed somehow fell exactly in front of where the camera happened to be pointed at that moment. We spent quite a long time testing different rigs. And I, you know, I didn't know a lot of stabilizing rigs, but um, we tested everything we could think of and then whittled it down to basically um, four major systems. So some was Steadicam, some was Trinity, which is uh, Ari's a kind of Steadicam, but it's an arm that you can control, goes up and down. It's, it's similar to a Steadicam in a way, but actually more stable, I think. And then, but the major piece of equipment we um, tested was called a stabilizer, which is a, a stabilizing rig that's been invented by this guy called Dave Freeth, and it's only really been used in England on specific shots on films. And it's a very small, remotely operated head that works off a GPS system, I think. It's electronic, and it's kind of amazing. I don't know how these things work, but it's incredibly uh, smooth. And we probably shot 60% of the film on that remotely operated and then we also used um, a mini Libra head which people are familiar with which worked better on um, for the, the long run that Sam was talking about just now we used a mini Libra on that 
Could you comment on how the handoff between the different rigs felt so seamless in the movie? Well, that, I think if I'm pleased with one thing in the film, probably that's what I'm pleased with, that you don't really feel the change in the technique. And, and that was key, really, because you didn't want the camera to be a character. It's not that kind of film. You know, you just wanted to just disappear, really, in the image. And uh, I think for the most part, that's quite successful. And you operated? Well, I operated the remote head, which is, oh yeah, something like 60%. But when you say operate, I operated the wheels of what the cameras, where it's pointing. But then there's grips running around with it. You know? <laughs> so, I mean, you know, it was a lot of people operating. <laughs> uh, again, a shot that Sam was referencing to the, the run. I mean, the camera comes off a 50-foot technocranes, gets carried up the hill, can walk backwards, with George, uh, uh, you know, it's on a mini Libra head. Then it gets put on another Technocrane, it's on the back of a truck, and it goes racing off. And the grips that carried it are in uniform, so they, they got paid as being extras. They disappeared they into they, the background. They, they disappear across the shot. And that's incredibly complicated. There's probably 13 grips and Brian, our camera car driver, tracking vehicle driver on it as well as um, all the rest of us, Andy, focus pulling and all, a huge number of people just involved in those trade-offs, you know. We, it's exhilarating. When we did that shot, we got to the end and, oh my God, wow, it's, everyone's high-fiving all these <laughs> grips that I've known for like 30 years ago. Oh my word, that was something, I've never done that before. <laughs> it was really choice, it was really great. It was yeah, great. Yeah. Was your crew larger than usual? No, actually, it was quite small. It was quite small. I mean, I didn't have a lot of lighting. So, you know, that cut it down. I had one huge lighting rig, which was the Acoust uh, town. But otherwise, no, it was a grip crew and a camera crew. And we were on one camera. So, you know, I had, say, Pete and Charlie as operators and, a, and a quite a large grip crew. But it depended on, on the days. You know, sometimes it would be four or five grips and sometimes it would be 13 or 15 you know you mentioned the lighting since it had to stay continuous were there days that you had to switch which scenes you were going to shoot in a given no, day or anything no like that? but there were days we had to wait for a long period and days we didn't shoot we just rehearsed and we were incredibly lucky with the weather but i mean i must say there, there was the most tense nervous anxious thing for me was waiting for the cloud and some days it would be blue and little clouds would be coming and they'd come nearer and nearer and I'd say to Michael, I'd AD, get ready, get ready, and they would dissolve. And I think, well now, how am I going to get away with this? I've got to wait another hour. And you know, but I mean, I've got to say, Sam was so patient and everybody was so patient. Some days we waited hours and hours. But you know, I think a lot of it was, you know, Roger is vigilant normally and hates to feel like where people are waiting for him. And I have to say, Roger, we know we're not waiting for you. It's, we're all waiting for the weather, not just you. Because yeah, no, I think, you know, I had to sort of take the pressure off him because, you know, day one, we weren't shooting anything. He was pulling his hair out. I said, listen, nightmare. you know, and, and, you know, it's true to say that at the end of the first day, we were way behind. And by the end of the second day, we were ahead. Because what had happened in the first day is we'd rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed. So that when the weather was right on the second day we moved double the speed and suddenly we were doing more than we planned and so that that was what happened on good days um and that's when the rehearsals paid off you know but uh, yeah it was just trying to take the pressure off roger you didn't feel guilty <laughs> no but you do it's like i had all these weather apps and like, there's a cloud on this one i'll use that you know it was crazy is that our friends again 
Looks like it. Dogfight. Who's winning? Us, I think. Two on one. I got him. Where did uh, editorial come in? Where was Lee, your editor, Lee Smith, involved, and how did you work together? Lee was definitely the unsung hero on this one, because you you think, wouldn't you, that in an unbroken shot movie that the editor would be, frankly, almost surplus to requirements. But the truth was he was pivotal, because what he was doing was he was back in London, but he was putting the shots together. He was, in many cases, putting temp score on it, getting the sound right, occasionally borrowing takes, occasionally speeding things up, slowing things down, you know, that sort of thing. And we were able to see the movie emerge very quickly and judge from those shots uh, what the rhythm of, what, what we were capable of, what, what, what was possible in the following scene. So, for example, there's a scene towards the end of the movie where Schofield, played by George Mackay, stumbles on a, a soldier singing in the woods to a, a band of, 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 to a battalion. And it, it's... It takes its time, this scene. And I'm not sure, had I not been able to see the movie right up to that point, whether I would have had the courage as a director to allow it to take the time it does. And I think that that's because of Lee feeding the movie back all the time. He's also a very, very good judge of performance. And that was crucial because we had to choose our selected take very quickly because we had to match to that take immediately. The ne literally the next day and in some cases on the day itself that we shot it we shot something in the morning and I had to select the take that was going to be in the movie a five minute take definitively so that we could match to the the take we were shooting in the afternoon and um, and so you know it, it it made you you had to make decisions quickly and and it was you know, sometimes you, you did think, why have I done this to myself? Um, and then you shot it chronologically, it sounds like. We shot it as chronologically as we could, yeah. I mean, we jumped around a bit when we went up north to, to Glasgow. But yes, we, we were watching the movie emerge chronologically, which also was incredibly helpful and helpful for the actors, too. They, they lived through it in, in, you know, in sequence. And then how did visual effects step in to help with the blending when you had cuts? The, the blends were worked out very, very carefully in advance. I mean, we, if anything talked about them to the expense of almost everything else you know I think yeah, we I were mean, so uh, obsessed know, about them. Yeah. It was all about what well, Sam said he had to choose the take and then we'd start the, the next take and we'd have to match the action the distance of the actors from the lens their footsteps even you know that so, so that when they pass the moment where the blend is their actually footsteps are going in the right synchronicity together and everything so that was really that was really crucial um, so where we put the blends was really crucial we talked about that a lot the variety of the blends I don't think we should ever talk right now about which are blends and which aren't because I know already some people are saying well I know you changed the shot there and we didn't and some places <laughs> we did where we don't you wouldn't imagine it was um, there are some that are genuinely I mean there are lots in fact invisible but but at the same time but in in each case it was a combination of lee smith working with your visual effects house mpc yeah 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 absolutely and and uh, and our visual effects supervisors and uh, and i think the majority of visual effects work in the movies is, is set extensions and photo real 
uh, continuations of landscape and and uh, background removals and this sort of thing, and um, and it's different from the norm because. I think what you're often doing with visual effects houses is you're sending them a two-second shot or a four-second shot or a ten-second shot, and they give it back to you with a, you know a few framed handles and off away you go, right? But these are all shots you have you live in, you sort of marinate, and often you're seeing things constantly from different angles. You know, it's not just a church from the front; it's a church from the side and a church from behind, and it's burning and you're different distances from it at, a, at any given moment. The, the blossoms that fall in the river, you know, have to be adjusted and adjusted and adjusted as they move. So. You know, it, it, it's living environments and and uh, not just distant landscapes, and and that had to be integrated into the things we'd found, and we wanted it. You know, obviously, it has to be part of the lighting, that the world, and the atmosphere that that we shot, and and that's what is takes the lead in everything. So it's it's unusual in that regard. Even though we're always shooting in cloud, there's some disparity of time of day between the A side and the B side of a shot. So you put in it little blends timing-wise in that, and we were very adamant that everything that the visual effects guys did came back without any baked-in timing or anything, so we had control over that in the DI. But obviously you're helping the idea of it going into dusk. Um, but, I mean, when we did Glasgow, which is the last shot that's meant to be dusk, uh, going across the canal bridge, we shot that late afternoon. I mean... I managed to actually stall before we shot that quite well. I forget what I did now. You thought we didn't know what you were doing. I was going to break my leg at one point, but I thought that was too obvious. But. Well, the, the thing is, though, actually, I mean, what, what you see, I mean, it's obviously been a tweet significantly by Roger and, and Greg, who is, is the colorist, but, but really it's not that far from what we shot. And, and, uh, and I think that um, one of the great things about shooting on digital and one of the great things that I felt and this was on Skyfall as well when, when the last time we worked together is that you do what you see on, on set is very very close to what you what the, the finished product obviously the finished product is, is finished and and uh, and has that sort of detail that you need from continuity but without again it gave us the confidence um, that, that things that you know um, but perhaps shot in more light than we would initially have wished could work as dusk or work as dawn uh, you know, work as the, the breaking of day. And that just gives you the confidence on set to say, yes, it's that take, we're moving on, you know, because without that confidence, you could be sitting there, you know, second guessing yourself for weeks. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes one does, you know, in normal movies. Each take obviously had their own challenges, but what was the one that most kept you up at night? Well, I mean, probably we had different ones, I would think. Um, the one that kept me up most at night will be a surprise to Roger, actually. Um, it was the first shot of the movie. That that was the one that concerned me the most, actually, because it wasn't just a shot. It's not a particularly complex shot, but getting the tone right and living with these boys, once they're given the mission, I think we know what the stakes are, you know the ticking clock, everything. But you just want to live with them in real time, and they talk a bit, and they walk a bit, and they don't do much. And that, for me, while... You know, you also know that probably at this point the audience is beginning to sense, oh, we're, this is shots going on quite a long time, you know, and and for that not to feel self-conscious, either from the actors or from the from the camera, I thought that was that was the thing that, and it, and it weirdly, I also spent I spent a lot of time with that in post, getting the music right and getting that feeling, just as I wanted it. So that was for me the the thing that caused me the most sleep loss. And Roger, um, I wanted the sun to come out at the end of the film. And it does. <laughs> it really does. James, Roger's wife, said, Roger, you can't make the sun come out. But she was wrong. 
She was wrong. <laughs> the sun comes out. It's the real sun. Now, you also had more than 500 extras, as I understand it. We did, yeah. There were a lot of extras. But, you know, I, I also did something I've never done before, which is I auditioned all of them. Um, now, I say I auditioned them. I, I got our wonderful AD team to basically, you know, ask them three questions. You know, what's your favorite TV show? What do you want to do for it? What was your ambition when you were young? You know, and, and walk around a bit. And the reason is you very quickly can see, you know, their level of physical dexterity or lack of dexterity. And both of them were, were, were valid for this movie. Their personality and it comes through very quickly. And so we were very careful out of the 2000 people we auditioned that we chose those 500 very specifically. And it, and it made a big difference. I have to say it made a big difference. And plus, Michael Lerman, who was our first AD and co-producer is brilliant, absolutely brilliant with background. And, um, you know, spent a long time, there were put through boot camp they were you know they were dressed in tents that were surrounded by picture research of the period with documentaries playing in the corner and music from the period playing in the background and this they also were very influenced by the feeling of teamwork and uh, excitement that this way of working engendered uh, they were really gung-ho they, they got it they understood what was required of them they knew the camera wouldn't cut and there's a freedom in that and excitement that they're not used to so they could just do it you know full out full out and not stop you know and that was I think really helpful for the background so because they really were an important are an important part of the movie did you hear that story about Wilco how he lost his ear not in the mood keep your eyes on the trees top of the ridge but he told you it was shrapnel. What was it then? Well, you know his girl's a hairdresser, right? And he was moaning about the lack of bathing facilities when he wrote to her. She sends him over this hair oil. <laughs> Smells sweet. Like golden syrup. Wilco loves the smell. But he doesn't want to cast it around in his pack. <laughs> so... He slathers it all over his barnet, goes to sleep. And in the middle of the night, he wakes up and a rat is sitting on his shoulder, licking the oil off his head. <laughs> Wilco panics and he jumps up. And when he does, the rat bites clean through his knee and runs off with it. Would you talk about how you shot the scene in the river? I assume that was in a tank? No, it wasn't. It was on... I don't want to be too specific about this, but, but basically uh, it was on a, a very impressive whitewater facility in the north of England. Some of it is real. I mean, the water is all real. And believe me, George is in the water in the freezing cold river and fighting to stay up. I mean, that wasn't acting. Um, but some of the, the banks are not real. And uh, we wanted, that was, I think, probably of all the sequences, it's good that you ask about it. It's probably the one we talked about the most because... We didn't want to be on the water itself. We didn't want to be in a, in a raft because we felt that when the raft went up and the actor went down, we would lose him constantly. We tried getting in the water with him. That didn't work. We tried being higher than him. That felt like it took us out of the movie. You know, and eventually we found a rig. It was, it was actually very simple. It was a vehicle driving along the riverside with an arm off it that we could, you know, we could swing out and move according to where George was in the water without remaining in exactly the same relationship to him because we also didn't want it to be locked off otherwise we could have built a rig that was attached to George and then put the camera on that rig but then the relationship between him and the camera would have always been the same so you know it's basically we built a road alongside the 
the water. And it was a technocrane arm that could, you know, boom in and out on a pickle. And uh, so, you know, we had a wonderful camera car driver who also did the run at the end of the film, Brian. And um, the grip crew, fantastic grip crew, so they could stay in sync with the actors and get the camera where side on when Sam wanted to be side on in front where he wanted, you know. So, yeah, I mean, we had to have control over that. So also that facility gave us the ability to, to change the course of the river, if you like, so that we had the Because it's a white water flow, facility, so we know. could move, as it were, where the rocks were, yeah. and the rocks move where the water goes. So we could, we could really construct a journey for him down the river. But the actual, the back, background is actually, was shot off a drone. So, I mean, it is, it's kind of real and not real, you know, yeah. it's obviously... I mean, the thing about the film, just using kind of cutting-edge techniques, actually. I mean, you couldn't have done the film without a digital camera and a small digital camera and a, that particular kind of style of stabilised head. You know, it's just that all things come together so you can do what Sam was imagining. I hope it is what he was imagining. Yeah. <laughs> you actually used the prototype of the Alexa Mini LF for the film, correct? Yes, we, they, we went to, James and I went to Munich... Uh, in the summer before we way before and um, twisted Ari's arm I've always worked with Ari and they were very good and they thought about it and said well we, we're going to make a, a mini LF at some point um, okay we'll make it for you <laughs> so they, they guaranteed us three bodies by the time of the shoot So, and then completing this feel that you're constantly in the experience is obviously the sound would you like to comment briefly on their work well, you're absolutely right. I mean, the immersion that one feels with the movie is as much to do with sound as image. And I think these days, you know, we availed ourselves of, of all the bells and whistles that you get with Dolby Atmos and, and, and not to mention the conventional 7.1 and 5.1 cinemas. But I felt very strongly that nevertheless, I wanted the sound to emerge from the image. I think there's a great danger with um, surround sound that it sort of divorces itself, it detaches itself from the image, and you always want to feel like it's coming out at you from the image, even though you are using the surround. So it was a lesson in the delicate use of surrounds as much as possible. But then there are times when the movie becomes almost surreal. There's a time when Schofield wakes up, having been knocked out, and, and the landscape of the destroyed town is, is lit entirely by flares. And it's wonderful to be able to hear the flares going overhead or the planes going overhead earlier in the movie or the sound of the leaves are all around you when he's walking through the woods or feel like you're in the river with him um, because of the way that sound is used. And so it was about trying to do that in a judicious way. And again, similar to how we use the camera to not make it show-offy, you know, not to say, look at this sound or listen to that thing that's coming from the back of the auditorium to try and unify it. Um, and I thought... Uh, Oliver Tani and, and, and the sound boys, uh, you know, who, who mixed this movie did brilliantly, as did Lee Smith, who's also uh, a fantastic with sound right from the beginning. Congratulations to both of you, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank, thank you. you.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.